Hello and welcome to yet another thrilling episode of the Climate Voices podcast, your conduit to the change makers shaping our present and future. I'm your host, Omesa Mukaya. This podcast is a unique platform where we aim to break silos and bridge the communication gap that exists between policymakers, scientists, researchers, climate activists, and community practitioners from around the globe to engage in conversation. And as I always say, on this platform, we are addressing the climate crisis one conversation at a time. Today, we're bringing you a truly um, trailblazing guest, an individual who's not just leading, but also redefining the roadmap to a cleaner, uh, greener, and more sustainable future here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Our guest today, Catherine Antos, is the Undersecretary of Decarbonization and Resilience at the Massachusetts Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. Uh, welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, and as Secretary Catherine, I know you're in what I consider the captain's seat and, you know, steering the ship in the battle against what has become to be known as the existential crisis, you know, climate change. And certainly uh, you're orchestrating the transformation of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts into a beacon of climate and environmental stewardship. But before we dive into the conversation, um, could you briefly introduce yourself and, you know, tell us a little bit about your background, about your journey in the past and in this space into your present control at the moment. Yeah, I joined the Healy Driscoll administration three months ago. And prior to that, I had the honor to do a bunch of very exciting different roles that have prepared me for this moment. Um, immediately prior, I was the deputy executive director for planning and sustainability at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, which is the regional planning agency for the greater Boston area. And so there I oversaw our clean energy, our environment, our transportation, our arts and culture, and our land use departments, which the latter included our economic development and our housing teams. And so what I loved about that was working with cities and towns um, in the greater Boston region to break down silos and figure out how we could get more resilient communities that, that were sustainable and that gave residents the opportunity to live, work, and thrive in the region. Before that, I was in Washington, D.C., most recently with Washington, D.C.'s Department of Energy and Environment in a couple different roles. One was senior policy advisor to the director, and then also I was the chief of their partnering and environmental conservation branch. And so in both those roles, I had the opportunity to spearhead priority initiatives for Mayor Bowser's administration that included environmental education, cleaning up the Anacostia River, leading regional watershed restoration efforts, building stewardship programs and workforce development programs that really focused on how we could create career pipelines for under and unemployed populations within the district. Um, so just a lot of great initiatives that we got to do there. Um, I spent a year working with a nonprofit along the Anacostia River, and that allowed me to really dive deep into working with community-based organizations who were interested in the restoration of the river and doing so in a way that was centered in equity so that it was really connecting um, Black and Brown communities to the river and to parklands where historically they had been excluded. Um, and then I also spent nine years with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, most of that time in the Chesapeake Bay Program Office, which is the nation's preeminent watershed restoration partnership. Um, it's a partnership between the federal government 
and then the six states in Washington, D.C. that are within that watershed. And so I worked with them to develop accountability framework and adaptive management framework to figure out how we could restore water quality in the Chesapeake Bay. So throughout all that, it's been all about creating partnerships, bringing partners to the table, keeping them at the table, figuring out how we can push ourselves to go further and creating opportunities for our residents and really looking at environmental programs as a way to create opportunities and improve quality of life for our human residents and then also for our natural areas. And I'm thrilled to be bringing that experience and that work here to Massachusetts as we take on the climate crisis. Yeah, certainly the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is lucky to have all your experience from your past. I mean, uh, it seems you've really worked across different sectors, you know, from policy and implementation to working with communities and also the federal government. Yeah, so what we have seen in the past is the U.S. being on the spot, especially when it comes to climate action, given the political uh, standstill that was, has been involved. But, uh, you know, uh, recently we have seen that the U.S. is taking actually the center stage and really leading the climate action from the commitments that we have actually seen from, you know, the Biden-Harris administration. But what we have, uh, you know, emphasized over time is that effective implementation of any kind of work that we're trying to do, sometimes it's more effective when we downscale that to smaller units of implementation, say the state level and even better at the city and municipal levels. But we have seen away from the federal, you know, commitments through, for example, initiatives such as the Inflation Reduction Act, bipartisan infrastructure law, and apparently the White House, you know, came up with an initiative called the Justice 40, you know, focusing on underserved communities, but down to uh, the state of Massachusetts, are there some of the initiatives that the Commonwealth is leading at the moment in addressing uh, some issues around climate change, especially in decarbonization from different sectors, whether it be, you know, buildings or energy or whichever area as, as we aim to move towards achieving the climate goals that are in tandem with the rest of the globe as we aim to keep the temperatures below 1.5. Yeah, and I will say we are in this incredible moment now where we have the political will at the federal level. And we really need that because we need all of our states, all of our communities to be doing their part to address the climate crisis and making sure that the federal government is setting a framework um, policy-wise, resource-wise to enable that change to happen. And I would say here in Massachusetts, too, we are so fortunate that we have a governor who is laser focused on climate action. She sees climate as our greatest threat and also our greatest opportunity. We have a legislature who's pushing to create enforceable limits for meeting greenhouse gas reductions uh, in 2030 and in 2050. Um, we also have cities and towns that are leaning into climate action. And so we have all of those pieces together, a legislature, a governor, our local communities that are all looking to make change. And I would say one thing that I've really appreciated in my career is you need the federal government role to, to set that table, but then state and local governments can really be the places that innovate and figure out the best way to do it that also meets the unique needs, challenges 
challenges and opportunities within a state or within a community. And so it's wonderful to be working here in Massachusetts where we can say, what are the unique challenges that we have that we're in a colder climate than other areas? And so what does that mean as we think about decarbonizing our buildings and where our sources of heat come from? We have incredible opportunities for offshore wind. So how is that a part of our strategy? And so really being able to figure out how we seize this moment where there's federal resources, where there's state resources, where there's so many partners that that want to play a role in this and where, again, we have an executive and a legislature that are really focused on driving this change. Yeah, talking of the executive and legislature that is so committed to driving the change, I know you've made major um, announcements recently with the capital investment plan, you know, committing a lot of money, over $14 billion for the whole plan. But I like to ask maybe if they, their specific um, commitment in this plan, for instance, for, from the uh, fiscal year 2024 to 2028, specifically focusing in climate action and how this align with the broader goal of limiting carbon emissions. Yeah, as you noted, the, the capital investment plan um, from FY24 to 28, so over five years, it is $14 billion in total. And that has a particular emphasis on advancing climate, economic development, and housing goals. And so before I dig deeper into some of the sustainability aspects and the resilience aspects that I'm most excited about, I just want to flag that the state is looking at this in terms of these are different goals that are not in opposition. They're absolutely linked together. And we need to think about how we create housing that is healthy, that is energy efficient, that is decarbonized, that's resilient in the face of extreme weather events. We need to think about how that creates economic development opportunities for our residents, for businesses, for jobs, and do that in a way that we're meeting our greenhouse gas reduction limits and also becoming more resilient to the impacts of climate change that have already started to happen. So it's $14 billion in total. Um, some of the elements of that that I'm most interested in and that my team is leading really focuses on what we're doing to build resilience at the local level. And so in Massachusetts, we have something called the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program or MVP program. And we have 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. And three 349 of them participate in this program since it started um, just over five years ago. And what they do is, is towns and cities, they develop plans that look at what are the unique resilience challenges that they're facing, what are their vulnerabilities, what are the opportunities that they want to address and develop plans. And once they do those plans, then they are eligible to receive action grants from the state. Um, earlier this spring, Governor Healy announced the 2.0 of this planning process, where we're really asking our communities to go in, take into account the latest climate science, because you might have done your plan five years ago, and already we have better science out there on what projections of future conditions will be. We have better resilience design toolkits that our communities can be using, and we're also using at the state level. So go in and update those plans with the latest information. But even more importantly, we're providing through this 2.0 process training and resources for communities 
to more deeply engage with community-based organizations and environmental justice populations to really bring that voice into the resilience planning, because that's part of our commitment to center equity and environmental justice in all that we're doing. And so the capital investment plan, what that means in terms of, of dollars is that in FY24 alone, um, there's $24 million for this program. A little over 1 million of that is to do these 2.0 plans that again is gonna deepen environmental justice and bring in the best available information. Um, and then 23 million to do the action grants, to do the work um, of projects that were identified in the plans. So that might be acquiring land um, that will help with flood control um, and also improve access to natural areas that could have to do with designing and permitting resilience projects. It could also involve actually doing a restoration project like daylighting culverts or, um, or restoring streams in a way that is reducing flood risk. So we see those dollars in, in FY24, um, there's $24 million total, but then over five years, that commitment continues so that as a whole over five years, there's $125 million towards this project. So that's probably the element that I'm most excited about. Um, there are also resources in the capital investment plan for state agencies and specifically how the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs can support our fellow state agencies in implementing the State Hazard Mitigation and Climate Adaptation Plan, also known as Resilient Mass. Um, and so we have $42 million over the five-year period that we can provide to agencies to help them implement actions that they committed to in our in our five-year climate adaptation plan known as a resilient mass. And examples of those types of projects have to do with retrofitting public housing to increase resilience to flood and extreme heat, developing coastal resilience strategies, improving emergency responses to extreme heat. Um, so that's critically important too. And the final thing I want to note here is it's not just what the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs is doing with its resources through the Capital Investment Plan. It's also this whole of government approach that the state is taking, where they are asking all secretariats to consider climate in their capital investment planning process. And so resilience design toolkit that I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about tools that we now have available to local governments, that's something that we're asking each of our agents to use as well as they're designing capital projects that are then going to be funded by the capital investment plan. And so there's um, so there's investments in the SIP that go to MASTA and MBTA to help with electrification and help with resilience. There's also um, investments that go to our other state agencies to look at retrofits that they're doing um, within housing and also within the energy sources within state buildings to transition them away from fossil fuels. So it's not just what EEA is doing, it's also what we're asking all of our agencies to be doing as we take on this this climate action. Yeah, I like that you mentioned about decarbonizing the building sector. I know buildings globally contribute almost 39 to 40% 
of the global energy emissions and certainly that makes it a greatest priority area for you know focusing in terms of decarbonizing and you mentioned you know in working with other agencies especially in cutting down emissions from this uh, you talk about municipal buildings or um, we also have residential areas for instance so I, I will want to perhaps ask if uh, you have specific programs where you're working with homeowners for example when they're building uh, you know coming up with new buildings to make sure that they conform to the uh, international energy conservation code or any specific programs for the ones who are innovating on how they can take up into the retrofit program and how uh, you're working with for example utilities in that case also to ensure that energy being used in these buildings not just for the municipal but also for the residential areas uh, and also commercial setup are being decarbonized yeah so decarbonizing buildings is one of the most complex challenges that we face about how we're going to reduce our emissions by 50 percent by 2030 compared to 1990 and then get to net zero by 2050. Um, so for buildings specifically, as you noted, buildings and transportation, those are the two biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the Commonwealth. And so for buildings, when we think about our emissions that are coming from residential heating and cooling, that needs to decline by 49% from that 1990 baseline um, by 2030. And by 2050, it needs to be a 95% reduction. And so when I talk about decarbonization, I realize that that can be a bit of a, a wonky word. Really, that comes down to three things. It has to do with reducing energy usage. And so energy efficiency measures. In the case of buildings, a lot of that is insulation. It also has to do with electrifying our buildings. Um, and so instead of getting that source of heat coming from natural gas or delivered oil, um, instead connecting our buildings to the grid and so that we're using uh, the grid to be providing that heat and providing that power for buildings. And then finally, making sure that our grid, that our electric generation is coming from clean renewable sources, so notably wind and solar. Um, so really, again, to say it even more simply, decarbonization comes down to three things. It's reduce, it's electrify, and it's clean. And so for buildings, uh, we're fortunate that when it comes to new construction, because of the innovation and because of the knowledge sharing that we've seen, if you're now building a new building to passive house standards, on average, there's just a one to 2% price premium for that new building. And, and that's really good. And that's something that we've seen coming down. And within Massachusetts, we have stretch and optimized building codes that municipalities can opt into. And what that does is it means any new construction or major renovations are meeting energy efficiency standards, and also they're ready for electrification. And so that's making sure that the new buildings that, that we have in the Commonwealth are putting us on that pathway for our net zero future. However, one of the challenges that we face is that when we look at our buildings that are going to exist in 2050, over 80% of them have already been built. So what that means is that a lot of our decarbonization building um, goals for buildings is going to come from retrofitting existing buildings. And in Massachusetts, our buildings are heterogeneous, they are old, and so that really poses some unique challenges as we think about how are we going to achieve these solutions. But fortunately, we have several programs um, that, that are there. You mentioned uh, programs that are run by utilities in Massachusetts 
Massachusetts. That's our Mass Save program, which is our largest energy efficiency and electrification program. And through that, they offer audits where someone will come to your home or, or come to your business, look at the building and identify opportunities to improve energy efficiency and to electrify systems. And then offers incentives for heat pump, um, for insulation. And so each year they do about, they process about 100,000 uh, rebate submissions each year. Um, and we are, Massachusetts is one of the most energy efficient states in the nation, according to the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. And because of our location in the Northeast, we really need to be thinking hard about energy efficiency, because as we heat our buildings, we don't want that heat just going out into the world around us. We really need to be thinking about efficiency um, before we then work also on electrification and renewable energy sources. So MassSave is a big part, but there are other critical elements of our building decarbonization strategy. In Massachusetts, we have the Clean Energy Center, which is a quasi-governmental um, organization. We call it MassCEC for short. And they test a lot of innovative approaches to decarbonization that can then be brought to scale, say, through the MassSave program. And the state itself most notably through its Department of Energy Resources, also runs programs that pairs renewable energy with energy efficiency um, and electrification. And there's a real focus within the state on how we can provide those programs for affordable housing. So some an example of initiatives that we've launched recently is we have now a $50 million grant program to retrofit low and moderate income housing across the state. And it's supporting electrification of buildings and prioritizing people that have been most deeply impacted by fossil fuels. And so these projects will improve energy efficiency. Uh, it can support installing solar panels. It can make improvements like roof repairs and electrical updates to then allow those buildings to electrify through ground and air source heat pumps and other electrical appliances. And then if where applicants are seeking larger awards to this program, there are also commitments that um, those projects need to be providing opportunities for local workforce. So again, we're seeing that intersection of decarbonization, housing, and economic opportunity as we take on our, our, our climate action efforts. Um, we also earlier this month launched a Massachusetts Community Climate Bank, which is the nation's first climate bank that's focused first on affordable housing. And so we've um, put in an initial investment of $50 million of funding from the state. But the really important piece of this is it then allows us to attract private sector investment and also federal funding, most notably through the Inflation Action Act so that every dollar we put in can leverage even more resources to help us to decarbonize, starting first and foremost with affordable housing. And we're working with Mass Housing, Mass Development, and the Mass Clean Energy Center with that Massachusetts Community Climate Bank. Um, finally, I also want to flag that not just with the state programs that I've touched on, but also with federal rebates and incentives that are coming through the federal government, including through the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot out there. There's a lot to navigate. and we're aware of that. And so um, our administration is working to create a building decarbonization clearinghouse that will serve as a one-stop shop with customer-centric streamlined assistance for owners, residents, and businesses who are exploring options for upgrading and electrifying their buildings. And Governor Healy's first budget um, 
for fiscal year 24, the operating budget includes almost $5 million to perform analyses and begin to pilot this clearinghouse that would help customers plan for and implement decarbonization retrofits. It's something that we expect will, will grow over time. We're going to stand it up in phases, but in all phases of it, there's again this equity focus where we're serving on, where we're focusing on underserved market segments to ensure an equitable transformation of the building sector and making sure in particular that our residents that are in low and moderate income households, that they are getting superior access to these decarbonization resources and able to realize the benefits of a, of a cleaner um, cleaner climate future. Yeah, definitely the 50 million grant program you mentioned for low income and, you know, moderate income electrification is, is definitely a commendable initiative. So perhaps I'll want to ask just a follow up if the, the specific criteria for communities or any projects to qualify for this kind of funding uh, to enable them, you know, access clean energy for especially underserved communities, because you mentioned about, you know, low and mid income uh, communities. So um, is there a specific criteria for a specific community. You mentioned uh, there are 349, uh, especially municipalities taking part in some of the initiatives that you are doing. So is there a criteria that uh, any project or any community has to go through to access this uh, 50 million grant from the governor's office? Yeah, so the, the low and moderate income ha- um, affordable housing, that specifically has to do with households um, where the residents of those households meet certain income thresholds. I will say some of our other programs throughout the state have different ways to really prioritize equity and environmental justice. And so, for example, there's a Merrimack Valley renewal fund that is created from the settlement reached with Columbia Gas for its role in the 2018 Merrimack Valley gas explosions. And that funds clean and energy efficient programs and grants for homeowners, tenants, businesses, and municipalities in the Merrimack Valley. But again, there's a, there's a focus on um, low and moderate income households there. Um, there are also, I mentioned the Mass Save program earlier, and that works through our investor-owned utilities. In Massachusetts, we also have many municipal gas and light um, plants utilities that are providing energy to our communities that don't participate in the Mass Save program. So we have other programs that are out there to provide resources um, to those communities. And um, and we're also looking at within Massachusetts how we define environmental justice and environmental justice communities, looking at three criteria that have to do with race, income, and also language isolation. And so we also have many programs that put a priority focus on environmental justice communities. So earlier on, you you talked about electrifying the transport sectors. You, you mentioned that the transport sector and and the building sector is one of the biggest contributors, especially um, for uh, carbon emissions in Massachusetts. And you mentioned that uh, Massachusetts is actually leading the efforts, especially in decarbonizing these two sectors. And apparently, electrifying the and and you know decarbonizing the transport sector is a significant aspect of you know the state's climate goals. So perhaps are there some measures that are being taken or put in place to, you know, support adoption of, for example, electric vehicles or, you know, supporting public transportation as we aim to um, reduce emissions from the transport sector within Massachusetts. And uh, and when I talk about electric vehicles, for instance, they are critical enablers uh, such as, you know, people um, keep asking about, for example, the 
charging infrastructure because it's been used as an excuse for example in my country where i come from they say there are not sufficient charging points to enable people to uh, start purchasing electric vehicles so are there specific initiatives supporting that here in massachusetts especially uh, you know for example giving tax rebates for anyone who is purchasing a, an electric vehicle yeah there's several programs that we have there um as you noted transportation and buildings those are two of the biggest sectors where we have to achieve our reductions and so for transportation by 2030 we need to get a 34 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions compared to 1990 and then by 2050 an 86 percent reductions and for ground transportation like like duty vehicles that percentage is even higher because a lot of those remaining emissions um in 2050 come from harder to decarbonize forms of transportation and so in massachusetts we expect that by 2050 almost 100 percent of our light duty vehicles are going to be electric vehicles and as you know that's a two-part challenge of one how do we get um get customers to transition from internal combustion vehicles to electric vehicles? And then two, how do we make sure that there are places to charge them and, and that our grid can handle that charging demand? And so we have several different programs that are supporting both aspects of that. Um, one, I will say our state vehicle emission standards. Um, that is an area where we are a leader. We have adopted California Air Resource Board's vehicle emission standards. So what that does is it requires an increasing portion of annual vehicle sales in Massachusetts to be electric vehicles. And under the most recent light duty regulations, um, auto manufacturers are required to have 35% of the vehicles they sell in 2026 be electric vehicles. And that's going to increase up to 100% for model year 2035. So again, that means in 2035, if you're buying a light duty vehicle, it's going to have to be an electric vehicle. Um, we also, in addition to those increasing sales um, levels, we also offer rebates. And one of our largest rebate programs that we offer in the state through our Department of Energy Resources is our more EV rebate program. That's been around for eight years. And in that time, we've issued almost 30,000 rebates, totaling $61 million. Um, those rebate level per vehicle increased last November. And we've seen in response a healthy uptick, healthy adoption rates in this year. The 2022 climate law um, directed us to look at those rebate levels. And so we are in the process of updating and enhancing the more EV rebate program consistent with the 2022 climate law. And that includes introducing new incentives that continue to support the adoption of zero emission vehicles. Um, we're also working with dealers to make sure that this next phase of the rebate program is really consumer focused. And we expect to be sharing more information on that later this summer. Um, so that is, is the big area where we're looking at at the rebate side and also looking at what are our regulations that, that push that transition to electric vehicles. But you also ask, well, what about the charging? What do we do once we get that vehicle? Where do we plug it in? And that is an area where Mass Department of Transportation or MassDOT um, also our Department of Energy Resources, our Department of Environmental Protection, and the utilities are all playing roles in, in helping to install that EV charging. So MassDOT is really focused on the corridors, our highway corridors, 
Um, the utilities have been authorized by the Department of Public Utilities um, for $400 million in funding for make-ready EV infrastructure in public settings and homes and fleet depots, as well as public charging stations. And then um, within Department of Environmental Protection and Department of Energy Resources, we have an electric vehicle incentive program and also leading by example programs that provide resources for charging infrastructure. Our leading by example program really focuses on fleet charging infrastructure at state agencies because it's a really important part of our decarbonization strategy to be looking at what are we doing with our own state facilities, our own state assets to make sure that they are decarbonized and also resilient to a changing climate. Um, another piece that we're doing is we're supporting partners within Massachusetts in being able to apply for and access the federal resources that are out there um, because Governor Healy She's a competitor. She competes hard for every federal dollar that's out there. And that means by their us being the direct applicants or receiving those formula funds and making sure that we're using them effectively, but also supporting our partners, such as regional planning agencies or communities when they're applying for these resources as well for charging in more community areas. Um, so the other part of it is once you have that charging infrastructure, it needs to connect to a grid that can safely and reliably provide energy from renewable sources. Um, so that's another area of focus for us. And in May, we began convening an electric vehicle infrastructure coordinating council to complete an assessment of EV charging infrastructure in Massachusetts, including how to build out transmission and distribution infrastructure to support electrification and looking at the long-term business model for EV charging, because you can install a charging, but you need to make sure that that charger continues to operate. So what does that business model look like? Um, and then finally, how the deployment of EV charging stations can best support the grid. So those are all different aspects that we're looking at when it comes to how are we gonna decarbonize the, the transportation sector. Again, get people buying EVs, make sure there's a place to plug them in, and then make sure that we have a grid that can support that. And also thinking about how those batteries within those vehicles can actually be an asset to the grid um, in terms of how they charge and if there are opportunities for them to give energy back to the grid at, at times of peak demand. It seems the Commonwealth is, is on top of the game in terms of uh, making sure that you're decarbonizing these sectors and uh, we have the necessary infrastructure that is needed. And I like that you mentioned uh, Governor Hill is on top of the game too in tapping into the federal funding and resources that are given because I know funding is one of the critical enablers again of the transformation like I mentioned mm -hmm. before. Yeah, so I know that this the bipartisan infrastructure law that commits a lot of billion, I think around $60 billion are towards addressing some of these issues, especially for underserved communities or the environmental justice communities like you mentioned and infrastructure is definitely one of the areas to look at. So I, I was actually going to ask if there's a specific way or specific initiatives that, uh, you know, the state is working with the federal government in helping the communities to tap into the federal funding or if there are specific uh, criteria, again, I, I'm not really sure about how uh, communities, for example, here in Massachusetts can tap into the federal funding that is given in uh, addressing some of these in environmental injustice and equity issues. So is there a specific program or programs that are led, for example, from the administration in helping the communities from that angle? Yeah, 
this is a, a multi-pronged approach. And I will say something that makes Massachusetts unique is that we don't have strong county level government. And so what we need to do to make sure that the ways that our cities and towns, particularly our towns are structured, is that they are still able to access the federal resources that are out there. And there's a few different ways that happens. There's so many different programs that are within the bipartisan infrastructure law, and then also in the Inflation Reduction Act. And in some cases, it's formula funding that comes to the state, and then we can use those resources to support our communities. Um, in other cases, it might be the state who's the one applying for those resources, but we're specifically thinking about projects that will help our communities build the capacity um, to partner with us in this decarbonization future. And so an example there is our Department of Energy Resources applied for our, uh, resilient and efficient codes implementation grant. And one of the things that should we get those dollars from U.S. Department of Energy, it would provide resources to help train building inspectors to, um, to be able to implement our new building codes, our updated stretch code and our new specialized opt-in code that moves new construction and significant renovations towards that net zero future through energy efficiency and ensuring that those buildings are electrification ready. Um, and then there are other programs that a community could apply for directly. And um, and actually some of the programs that we talked about earlier when I was talking about the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program, that is a great example where, for example, the cities of Everett and Chelsea through the MVP program and their planning and also their hazard mitigation planning, they were identifying some specific vulnerabilities within those cities. And then they used that to apply for dollars from the um, Federal Emergency Management Agency or FEMA for resilience funding. And there's other communities throughout the Commonwealth that have done that. Um, and there are other funding sources too that are available, say for NOAA, for coastal resilience. So building off of the planning resources that we provide our communities, seeing what they've identified there, and either they can apply and we are supporting them in that application process, or we might be applying for a project that a community has identified as a priority. Um, we also, some of our communities, because we don't have that county level government, it can be harder to identify match opportunities because some federal grants do um, do require match dollars. And so that's another area that we're helping um, to understand what are some opportunities and some strategies that they can deploy to have match so that they're they can leverage that to get additional federal resources. Our two big programs where we work with municipalities is that Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Program or MVP program on the resilience front, and then also our Green Communities Program, um, which has been around. We're just coming up on the 15th anniversary of, of that program, and that's really focused on reducing municipal energy usage. And, um, and so those are two areas where we work with our communities to understand what are their needs and what are additional resource needs that they have in order to, to implement projects and where federal funding is a piece of that puzzle, um, working with them to apply for those federal dollars or pass it along through formula dollars that we can receive. Yeah, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, as, as we 
near the close of this. I, I really want to, you know, ask if there's a way that the underserved communities, uh, you mentioned Chelsea, I've been interested, I've, I've been looking around and, you know, Chelsea is apparently one of the communities that is uh, greatly underserved and, and, you know, impacted at the front lines of climate change. And also another, a couple of communities, uh, for example, in eastern Boston or communities in Roxbury, greatly impacted by climate change. And they face a lot of issues, especially in health issues. Issues, uh, and especially the communities which are closer to the Boston Logan Airport and the other communities which are at the front lines of climate change. And you have actually talked about some of the initiatives which are targeting these communities through, for example, the municipal vulnerability preparedness. So uh, are there other opportunities for other communities, uh, for example, communities from here in Worcester, communities in Framingham, uh, to tap into um, some of these programs that are given. And one of the critical areas I know that remains at the center of climate action is technical capacity and also when we talk about infrastructure for instance sometimes it's very expensive to um, secure or purchase uh, this kind of infrastructure when it's from an individual and i know there are a lot of programs where they you know pull together communities and they do a bulk purchase which makes it a bit um, cheaper to purchase some of the infrastructure that is needed especially for retrofits within buildings so are there existing opportunities that communities for example which don't know at the moment can tap into or they can get access to that can help them in addressing the challenges that they face uh, from climate change. Yeah, environmental justice is a key priority for this administration and it's showing up tangibly in several different ways. And so from our energy siting practices to our work in building healthy clean, home, clean homes where I talked about earlier, a lot of that is focusing on affordable housing. We know we can't repeat the injustice of the past. And so we're working to ensure that environmental justice communities do not bear the disproportionate burden of the climate crisis and can share in the benefits as well. And so one way that that is being done is now within the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs. For the first time, we now have an undersecretary for environmental justice. And that position is filled by not just a, a state leader, a national, nationally recognized top expert Maria Belin Power, who I'm honored to call my colleague in this work. And she's leading the charge to integrate environmental justice principles into everything that we do and really make Massachusetts nation leading in this work over the coming years. And so areas where she's really focused on is community benefits plans. So how do we make sure that whether it's state grants or federal grants, that the benefits of those programs are meaningfully going to communities. Um, she's also looking at cumulative impact analyses. So through our permitting processes as we're approving different projects, um, how do we make sure that environmental justice populations are not disproportionately bearing the burden, not just of a single project, but of the cumulative impact of those projects over time. Um, also with siting decisions, we have a new energy facility siting commission that is being stood up. And a big part of it is in order to achieve this clean energy transition, we're going to need a lot more energy infrastructure for generation, also for transmission, 
production and distribution, but how can we ensure that environmental justice communities are having a voice in that and that where we cite the infrastructure is not repeating injustices of the past. Um, you also mentioned federal grants and how are we looking to bring federal resources to environmental justice communities. So one recent example of that is that we recently applied to the U.S. Forest Service for our urban community forestry dollars for $50 million that would allow us to expand our Greening the Gateways program to all of our gateway cities. And that would do tree planting, which would help with urban heat island, also helps with stormwater management, with flood resilience. But a key part of that is also training and employing residents from environmental justice communities, residents that have been under or unemployed to do this important work of planting these trees, of maintaining these trees so that they can survive. Being a tree in an urban environment is not easy. They're exposed to a lot more pollution and have less space for their roots to grow. Um, and so we're looking at our urban uh, urban forestry strategy that is addressing our key climate vulnerabilities and also doing so in a way that creates opportunities for our environmental justice populations. Um, finally, through the budget, both through the governor's operating budget that she introduced to the legislature earlier this year, and, and we're looking forward to finalizing, and also through the capital investment plan that I talked about earlier, there are investments in air monitoring too, to help us um, better understand and analyze what are the air quality impacts because those have direct health impact on environmental justice populations. So those those are just some of the examples that we are taking to ensure that everything that we do on climate is really centering environmental justice, looking to undo past historical harms and make sure that this clean energy and climate transition is, is benefiting environmental justice populations. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. We're coming to the end of this and thank you so much for taking your time to share you know some of the initiatives that you're taking that you're leading yourself and and what this the state of massachusetts is uh, taking at the moment to make sure that we remain within our climate goals of limiting carbon emissions like you mentioned until the year 2050 from the 1990 levels yeah so is there any last words of parting shot that you want to share for anyone who's watching this or anyone who's listening to this because apparently this podcast you know shares audience across the globe we now have audience in over 40 countries so anyone who's listening we're not just having audience in massachusetts but your message is going across the world because again climate change is a global issue so anyone who's listening to this can tap into uh, some of these initiatives that you're talking about so any last words you might want to uh so to say to any of our audience that is either watching or listening to this Thank you so much for the conversation and for creating this opportunity for such a large global audience to learn lessons either from Massachusetts or through um, through other guests that you've had on the show. I think one of the last things I want to end with is just the power of team. Um, we're lucky again that we have a governor that is deeply committed to climate and looking at the interplay of climate and housing and economic opportunity. And through her commitment, she has also created the first in the nation climate chief, who is the lead for taking a cross-secretariat approach to make sure that Department of Transportation, housing, economic development, all the different aspects of, of our government are thinking about climate. And so working with her and her team is critically important because my agency, Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs, and our agencies within that we do a lot, but like all things, we we need our um, 
We need our partners to make it happen. And we also need our partners within local government as well. And then finally, I just want to say within EEA, um, such a strong team under Secretary Tepper's leadership. I mentioned Maria Belin Power, our first undersecretary of environmental justice, but also our undersecretary for environment, Stephanie Cooper, and our undersecretary for energy, Mike Judge, and all of the um, commissioners and staff that we have within EEA. A lot of the exciting initiatives that I was able to share with you today. It's because we have a great bench and a deep bench. And um, and like I mentioned at the outset, when I talked about what are things in my career that have made me excited, it's that bringing partners to the table, breaking down silos and figuring out how we're going to get hard things done. And so I'm honored to be part of that team that's figuring this out now. So thank you. Yeah, collaboration is key in, in anything that we do. I always say that no one has a monopoly of, you know, solutions or monopoly of knowledge. When we put our heads together, great things happen and and thank you for recognizing the great team that you've been a part of it shows you know your commitment again to uh, teamwork and collaboration in you know ensuring that we achieve our goals because we are in this together as we always say it's been a pleasure really having you on the show i really appreciate you taking time to take part in this and uh, i hope we do this sometime again yeah so thank you so much uh, under secretary catherine and it's been a pleasure thank you so much yeah this is the climate voices podcast and I've been your host, Omesa Mukaya. 